to introduce uh, today's webinar, which is um, a book presentation by Professor Elizabeth Libby um, Thompson, who is Professor of History um, and the Mohammed Saeed Farsi Chair of Islamic Peace at the American University in Washington, DC. We're gonna be talking about her book just published, How the West Stole Democracy from the Arabs, the Syrian Arab Congress of 1920 and the destruction of its historic liberal Islamic alliance. Um, and and uh, Libby, Professor Thompson is going to just give us an outline of her book. Um, this is not her first book, of course. Uh, she's also the author of Justice Interrupted, The Struggle for Constitutional Government in the Middle East, and the, and the prize-winning Colonial Citizens, Republican Rights, Paternal Privilege, and Gender in French, Syria, and Lebanon. Um, she has received fellowships from the Carnegie Corporation of New York and Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, and is former co-director co of the National Endowment for the Humanities Seminar on the World War on World War One in the Middle East. About our chair, um, Professor Eugene Rogan is professor of modern Middle Eastern history at Oxford University, where he's taught since 1991. He's a fellow of St Anthony's College and director of the Middle East Center, from where he's speaking today. He has a BA from Columbia in economics and a PhD in Middle Eastern history from Harvard. In 2017, he was elected fellow of the British Academy. He is author, of course, of many books as well, notably The Arabs, A History, um, originally published in uh, 2009 and named best book of 2009 by a number of notable um, uh, authorities. His new book, The Fall of the Ottomans, The Great War in the Middle East, was published in 2015 and was also very well received and named the best book by The Economist and The Wall Street Journal. Earlier works include The Frontiers of the State in the Late Ottoman Empire, and for which he received the Albert Hurani Book Award. Um, and also, uh, just to mention one other publication, because it's uh, relevant to our event next week, that he's also co-editor with Professor Abby Schleim, also from Oxford, on the War for Palestine, rewriting the history of 1948. So I think with no more ado, I'm going to hand over to Professor Thompson to give her presentation and um, then allow the two, uh, our, two, our two guests to discuss. And then I'll come back in when we open up the discussions again. So thank you very much and looking forward to this very much. Thank you so much, Carol. It's a pleasure to be here. And I wanna thank everyone at CBRL for hosting me. I'm delighted to share some themes from my book uh, with an audience of such expertise. Let me put up my PowerPoint and uh, I'll give a just sort of run through of, um, of sort of major points uh, so that we can then expand on them in our conversation and in the Q&A afterward. Uh, hold on. Okay, good. Uh, to begin, let us remember that right now, um, as we speak in the summer of 2020, Half of the Syrian people are starving. 
Millions go to bed every night with no food in their stomachs and many with no roof over their heads. Is it a luxury to speak of democracy during pandemic and famine? I believe not. As the economist Amartya Sen has argued, famines occur during and under dictatorships, not typically under democracies. It is therefore imperative that we examine why Syria has lost its democratic culture. It was, as many of the historians among us know, quite precocious in that respect. Only after examining those causes can we begin to imagine how to restore democracy to Syria. I'll begin with a couple words on the origins of the project because I think it helps uh, give you the sense of um, the argument I'm making overall. In the summer of 2013, I was writing an article on Syria after World War I, and two things struck me. The first was that I was surprised to discover that the president of the Syrian Congress in 1920 was a religious man, Sheikh Rashid Ridda. He led the drafting of a constitution that is, for me, uh, the most democratic in the Arab world to the present day and in which religion was separated from the state. The second thing that struck me was to see the end of the Arab Spring in Egypt with the massacre of 400 Muslim brothers. The democratic revolution against Hosni Mubarak's dictatorship had begun in 2011 with the union of liberal, secular liberals and the Muslim brothers in Tahrir Square. But in 2013, the liberals turned against the president-elect Mohamed Morsi and the brothers after they ran through a highly Islamic constitution in contrast to the one that we're gonna talk about in a moment, um, drafted under the supervision of Rashid Ridda. Liberals in 2013 supported the coup by General Sisi who has installed a harsher dictatorship than before. How is it that a coalition between liberals and Islamists was successful in 1920, but that the same coalition failed a century later? in the Arab Spring. I have devoted myself uh, to writing a book that explains the success and the destruction of the democratic coalition in 1920. I believe the history of that time is a factor in the current bankruptcy of democracy, not only in Syria, but in the Arab world today. A little background. The collapse of the Ottoman Empire in the First World War was a chance to build an, an independent Arab state. In October 1918, Prince Faisal proclaimed that state, um, which was to govern the territory of Greater Syria, which includes today's Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Palestine, and Israel. Here you go, there's Damascus. Faisal proclaimed that the state should be a constitutional monarchy where all Arabs, Muslim or not, would enjoy equal rights. He went on to demand recognition of the Arab state at Damascus during a meeting of the Supreme Council of the uh, Paris Peace Conference in early 1919. The prince's speech so impressed Woodrow Wilson that the American president defended Syrians' right to self-determination against British and French claims to the territory in their secret Sykes-Picot Treaty. 
In February 1919, Wilson presented the covenant of the new League of Nations to the world. Article 22 guaranteed recognition of the uh, of a provisional independence of Syria under a temporary mandate. Afterwards, Wilson sent an American Commission of Inquiry to survey Syrians on their preferences concerning the mandate. In Syria, after Faisal's return in May, elections were held for a representative Congress. If you take a look at the poster, you'll find Rashid Ridda here uh, in the upper right corner at the blue star. And you'll notice that he is um, wearing a turban, as are several deputies in the Congress, men of religion. He was not in March president yet of the Congress. The president at that time was Hashem Atassi here, a lawyer from Homs and a former bureaucrat in the Ottoman Empire, very experienced. And contrary to um, the end to an otherwise fascinating film, Lawrence of Arabia, there were plenty of people who knew how to govern in Damascus uh, in 1918. He, you'll notice, wears a tarbouche, uh, typical of men who, of professions, uh, bureaucrats in the empire. Uh, and we also see as representatives elected men who wear, as this man here, uh, scarves of tribal leaders. And we also see several members, here we go, who wear no hat at all. They are typically, or they were typically members of FATAT, uh, an organization, a secret organization established by young uh, nationalists uh, before World War I. We can conclude just by looking at the self-representation of the deputies of the Congress in the spring of 1920, that uh, the Congress represented a wide spectrum of interests in Syria. It was not the puppet of Faisal or of the Fatat nationalists as, as French colonists claimed. In the summer of 1919, uh, the Congress met with the American King Crane Commission sent by Wilson, and deputies demanded, first of all, full independence. But if Paris would not accept that, they said they would accept a minimalist American mandate, consisting of a brief period of guidance by advisors chosen by the Syrians themselves. In any case, the Congress refused a French mandate because they knew that France intended to colonize Syria fully. However, in Washington that fall, the United States Senate voted to refuse that ratification of the Versailles Treaty, and therefore, they refused to join the League of Nations. No American mandate in the offing. Abandoned by the Americans, the Congress declared the independence of Syria in March 1920, without recourse to the peace conference in Paris. Immediately after the destruction, uh, I'm sorry, um, immediately after the declaration of independence in March 1920, Congress began drafting the Syrian constitution. They moved into this building in the central square of Damascus at the end of March and met there through to mid-July. In my opinion, the constitution they drafted was a real contract between the representatives of people, of the people, much like the American Constitution and the American Constitutional Congress 
that met in Philadelphia in 1787. The Congress completed a full draft of the Constitution in July 1920. Its 148 articles established a civil regime in the form of a representative monarchy. To my surprise, as I mentioned in my introduction, I discovered that under the presidency of Sheikh Rashid Ridda, the Congress had disestablished Islam as a state religion. And they did so eight years before Mustafa Kemal Ataturk virtually decreed against the will of men of religion, uh, the disestablishment of Islam in Turkey. Here, notably, it was done with the consent of those men wearing turbans in the Congress chambers. How and why did they do so? In an article he wrote later, Ritter explained that equality is a fundamental principle of Islamic governance. To make Islam the foundation of government, therefore, would violate that principle uh, because non-Muslim citizens would be unequal before the law. Rita also explained that religious law should be limited to religious matters, not extended to all matters of public interest. And as uh, we, most of us would immediately recognize, that is a, uh, an opinion, a point of view about the uh, jurisdiction of Islamic law not held by most Islamists today. I further discovered that Ritter played a key role in negotiating the compromise on this point, a compromise between religious conservatives who did vocally prefer Islam to be the state religion and liberals who opposed uh, uh, that point of view and demanded the separation of religion and state. Under the compromise, the two parties agreed, therefore, if you look at uh, the slide here uh, in Article 1, um, that the uh, religion of the king would be Islam, not the religion of the state. That was a compromise point. Many religious people, Rida included, actually, uh, believe that the, the general population expected um, uh, their leader to be a religious leader as well. After all, they had lived under the Ottoman Caliph for 400 years. Subsequent articles of the Constitution contained a comprehensive list of democratic rights to privacy, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and education, and so on. Meanwhile, uh, European leaders at the Paris Peace Conference rejected the independence of Syria, rejected the authority of the Congress, and also rejected the choice of Faisal as king. The uh, Supreme Council of the Conference conse consequently met at the end of April 1920 in San Remo, Italy, to divide Greater Syria into mandates. Remember, the Americans were out of the picture by then. And you can look at the picture here in the red arrow. This is French Prime Minister Alexander Mitterrand. Here is the British Prime Minister, uh, David Lloyd George, uh, Prime Minister of Italy, and the Japanese delegate. You may ask, where are the Arabs in this picture? In fact, they're on the other side of that door. The Arab delegation to the Paris Peace Conference was excluded from the meeting. In this room, in a luxury hotel at San Remo, 
Greater Syria was divided between the British and the French. France would get the mandate, a mandate over the northern half, today Syria and Lebanon, and Britain would govern the southern half, today Palestine, Israel, and Jordan. In addition, Iraq went to the British on the understanding that they would share Iraqi oil with the French. Immediately after San Remo, French Prime Minister Alexandre Mitterrand began planning for the military occupation of the Syrian interior. French troops had been on the coast and in Beirut, and most particularly, the destruction of the Arab government at Damascus. Back in 1919, in the League Covenant, it was imagined that mandatory powers would be invited by the people of the country of their free choice. That was the understanding of what self-determination or self-governance should be. In fact, as events unfolded in 1920, the mandates in the Arab world were imposed at gunpoint. Mitterrand justified the French invasion by claiming that the Congress itself was illegal and that their demands for independence and democratic government were extremist. The Syrian army was, uh, was at the time very weak because France and the United Kingdom had uh, uh, prohibited the import and purchase of arms. As a result, the uh, Syrian army was quickly defeated at Mycelon, just outside of Damascus, during the morning hours of July 24th, 1920. The 100 year anniversary of that defeat uh, will arrive in just about nine days. Most of the Congress deputies fled to Jordan, Palestine, Egypt, and Iraq. Faisal himself sought exile in Italy. The one power, although it in the end voted for the mandate, had shown some support for Syrian demands. The French invasion ended democratic politics in Syria for decades to come. By establishing their mandates by force, France and Britain laid the foundations for dictatorship in the Eastern Arab world. In, in conclusion, I would like to sort of give a, just a few brief um, illustrations of how the coalition of 1920 uh, fell apart and how difficult it was to revive it. The British felt bad about breaking, at least David, George, David Lloyd George claimed he felt bad about breaking their promise of independence to Faisal. In reality, we know, in retrospect, that the oil deal was much more important to them. Uh, as a consolation prize, however, they crowned Faisal king of Iraq in 1921. Faisal blamed the fall of Syria on the Congress. We can go into those details, if you like, in the Q&A. Uh, the important point here, however, is that he was quite content to govern Iraq in an undemocratic fashion with a weak parliament. Exiled in Egypt, Rashid Rida turned against his former liberal allies. When his appeals to the League of Nations failed, he understood that Europe would never grant rights to Muslims. He therefore taught his students and readers to seek justice within Islam against the West. One of his students, Hassan al-Banna, founded the Muslim Brotherhood in 1928. Unlike Rida in 1920, however, 
Banna sought to establish a state based on Islamic law. Back in Syria, now under the French, the 1920 Islamo-liberal co coalition disappeared. Secular elites formed the national bloc in opposition to the new populist Islamic parties. Hashem Atassi, you can see him standing here, uh, uh, took uh, power. Uh, he had been, uh, I should note, and I, uh, I pointed him out earlier, he was the Congress president in March 1920. He now became the bloc's prime minister as they installed their government in 1936 in this picture. Atassi and the bloc confronted the opposition of this new uh, Islamic movement, um, now much more um, organized into uh, multiple groups. And one of those was led by Kamal al-Qassab, whom you see on the right. He had actually rallied ordinary citizens to demand independence and to support the Congress in 1920. Now, uh, while he had been an ally of Atassi back then, he was his opponent. He and other Islamists, including future leaders of the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood, led demonstrations that would oust the bloc from power in 1939. The destruction of the Dem Arab democratic regime at Damascus in 1920 influenced politics in the other mandates, Egypt and Arabia, where exiles took up residence and built new political movements against uh, the imposition of European rule after World War I, and ultimately uh, in the eyes of um, both nationalists and Islamists against something called the West. This is very much in contrast to um, the hope and aspiration of men like Rida and Atassi in 1920 that uh, Syria might join the League of Nations as a member of the family of civilized nations. And so a cleavage was um, opened, if you will, between East and West. And so in each country, in their own various ways, between liberals and Islamists. That cleavage deepened after the Second World War and into independence. Paradoxically, seemingly secular military dictators adopted constitutions which enshrined Islam as the official religion and source of legislation in their countries. And that became a bone of contention uh, in 2011. The division between liberals and Islamists has for decades now weakened opposition to di dictatorship. Only the brief union between the two sides in 2011 uh, permitted and fueled uh, the wide popular uprisings against dictatorship, but the cleavage tragically appeared again. From a historical point of view then, in conclusion, the future for democracy in Syria and surrounding Arab countries depends on repairing this century old cleavage based not on essential elements of liberalism or Islam, but rather on the contingent political choices made by politicians in the wake of another pandemic back in 1920. Thank you. Well, Libby, is it okay if I join you now? Uh, please do. First off, let me just begin by extending a word of congratulations. I'm holding here a copy of the 
British edition of your book. I'm no stranger to this book. I've had the pleasure of talking about the ideas behind it with you over the years that you spent writing and researching this book. But yes. <laughs> I'd start by saying to our viewers that I really strongly encourage you all to try and get a hold of a copy and read the book because not only is Libby breaking important new ground that demonstrates better than most books in our trade, the present relevance of history, but she's done so in a narrative which is extremely lively and engaging and it's a real page turner. And it's hard to write a book like that, Libby. So I wanted to say, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. The book's a triumph and a great read. <laughs> and so it gives us a lot of stuff to talk about. Looking so forward. Kick off. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Rashid Ritter plays a really important role in your narrative. And he's a very famous man in his own right. Long before Faisal comes to the fore, you have a sense of Ritter as being in a genealogy of modernist thinkers in Azhar and in sort of Arab Islam, going back to Afghani, to his teacher Muhammad Abdu. Albert Hurani has presented these three characters as the kind of Islamic modernists who are going to bring a real Islamic content to national thought in the transition between the 19th and 20th century. And so what I would like to ask really is, you know, how do you explain his special role in the Syrian Congress? He's emerged in Damascus as a very key player, and yet from a very different background that we associated him with as the Azharite in that Afghani Abdu Rida trilogy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Um, you know, uh, uh, Rida and uh, Abdu had uh, differences over um, the relationship of their mission to politics, if you will. Uh, yet uh, when Rida established his magazine, a Manar, mm -hmm. uh, in the last years of the 19th century, you know, Abdu had uh, warned him not to engage directly in politics, which he, dis he disregarded. <laughs> um, very early on, the first years of the 20th century, he serialized a book um, on tyranny by uh, Abdurrahman Kawakabi, right, from Aleppo, uh, seeking exile in Cairo mysteriously, um, he died uh, just after that. There are those who think he might have been poisoned, right? Um, and so the seeds for 1920 were planted much earlier. Uh, Ridda himself was in exile in Cairo um, under the dictatorship of Sultan Abdul Hamid. And so when the 1908 constitutional revolution occurred, Ridda himself embraced that revolution, much as, you know, clerics over in Iran in 1906 had embraced the constitutional project there in Tehran. Uh, he even went to Istanbul to offer his services. And for him, he did not see any um, contradiction or conflict between his role as a man of religion and democracy. And he was sorely disappointed when the young Turks, who quickly reined in that revolution um, uh, to try to keep it within their own nationalist and etatist program, they rejected his proposal for sort of mo building a modern uh, religious institute in Istanbul. Right? So he turned against their dictatorship and um, was, uh, you know, 
very much in support of Arab independence by the time we get to the years of World War One. So for him, you know, it, 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 underneath his seeming, um, you know, his persona as a man of religion, he had long been a man of politics as well. I'm greatly in, indebted to scholars who came before me uh, who pointed out that Rida had really articulated for modern Islam um, a new way of, 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 um, of thinking and of spreading the word of activism, if you will, by publishing his ideas in a widely circulated magazine like Amanar, which was read from Morocco to Indonesia, right? So um, it was by putting those pieces together that I was able to comprehend in the summer of 2013 that it was, you know, that he, of course, he would have gone back to Damascus and of course he would have sought a leadership role. But I was fascinated that the historiogra historiography had barely noticed. There's all, there may be three, four books in Arabic published, you know, by Syrian historians or those who resident in Syria, who in passing noted that he became president of the Congress, but made no, paid no special attention to that. You know, and then there are a couple other scholars who look at, you know, political parties and see his, saw his role as part of something called the Syrian Union um, Party in Cairo, who said, well, this was his exceptional moment. He moved out of Islamism and embraced nationalism briefly, but then returned. There's a third party that would also share my surprise, but um, doesn't always pause to um, appreciate the, con the historical context, right? People who just think of Rida in terms of his later years as a pretty cranky reactionary, right? Um, a man who's not associated with liberalism and democracy. And the contribution my book makes is to situate that attitude historically. He, he made an about face. He completely believed that Islam could line up alongside other great civilizations around a common set of principles. Yeah, I think what really emerges uh, is you take your book into what we already have about Rashid Rida's life and work is the very complexity of the man. And we stop seeing him in two dimensions as the Islamic scholar or the Islamic modernist. And that instead, this is a man who is really capable of defining the limits of the relevance of Islam in a state's project. Yes, I think, yeah, as you, you know, you point out well, and this is one of the virtues of, of using biography as a, it's some, I mean, not that my book is a biography per se, but in a way it is uh, sort of telling the story. It's, it's an old fashioned narrative history, right? Where we put people in their context and they, we see them act through time. I just want to give a nod to um, uh, Fuad Rida, who, was, is his uh, grandson. Mm -hmm. I met him, he lives in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. and he showed me his grandfather's robes, even his pen, uh, his, uh, you know, cloth belt, his uh, eyeglasses, and so on, with great reverence. Mm -hmm. um, but then at the same time, reminded me, this man ran a press. He ran, and that, you know, he saw with his own eyes you know, the press that um, Manar was published on, and his father, Rida's son, who had become an engineer, um, uh, told him how 
Rashid Rida, the man of religion, would go in there and tinker yeah. with the mechanics of the printing press, right? How very human, right? Yeah. And when he was not, he was not um, a monk in any sense. Um, no. And so it should come as no surprise, I think, that he would be engaged. No, and that he would be disenchanted by the way in which he saw a project that was liberal and constitutional betrayed by the very European powers in a sense that this order was modeled on, you know, the kind of political evolutions that had taken place since the Enlightenment that had demonstrated the superiority of constitutional government and the division of powers and the rule of law. You know, their, their role model in that evolution would be the European powers who were now going to betray this moment where the Arabs were demonstrating their ability to make self-determination a reality. So you know, that he got cranky afterwards. Who wouldn't get cranky? You know, it's, it's reasonable. Not just cranky, I think profoundly disillusioned, yeah. right? I mean. Precisely, precisely. Look, um, I remember as a kid being told that the longest word in the English language was anti-disestablishmentarianism. <laughs> And you don't often get the opportunity to use it in a public event. Congratulations, yeah. yeah. Well, exactly. And you're giving me because you, you make this claim that, um, you know, the, the result of the way in which Rida in the Constitution's drafting defines Islam was effectively the virtual disestablishment of Islam. And you say this is revolutionary. I agree with that. But I wanted to know whether there was not more pushback from conservative <laughs> factors. You know, you showed us the photographs, the people of the guys wearing turbans in the Congress. So tell me, was there an anti-disestablishmentarian <laughs> in Absolutely. the Arab Congress who was pushing back against Rida in his bid to separate religion from society? Oh, just be careful because Rida, did not, Rida himself did not go into these negotiations, which began and under the conditions of a blizzard in February 1920, right? Everybody was trapped in Damascus together. You couldn't make any appeals or run, you know, to Beirut or whatever. Um, and uh, he himself had entered the, the negotiations, not yet accepting the disestablishment completely. Um, he would have been comfortable in February with the idea that the state would be Islamic, okay? So he was himself a person who changed his position, right? Mm -hmm. no, I mean, I think uh, I can only, well, I, I, I can put together the pieces and read between the lines to understand mm -hmm. that at work at that moment was the overwhelming sense of need to unite against a common enemy. Mm -hmm. You know, so when we talk about the contingencies of history, there was this moment when the planets aligned, when men of religion alongside the young men of Fatat both recognized that they, their priority was independence mm -hmm. and that um, they needed to come to agreement. You know, Rida becomes uh, president of the Congress only after a huge fight in which some of these religious uh, figures stormed out of the Congress meeting room, the chambers, uh, over the proposal to grant women the right to vote. Right. right. And he stood up, and this is where he says in plain terms, and he only, he could say it, really. He was the world famous cleric who, you know, answered fatwas, uh, you know, issued fatwas to people who sent in questions from around the globe, right? And he stood up 
Everybody clapped when he stood up, right? He's not yet president of the Congress and says, look, all well and good, but you know, you, one side is arguing that according to Islam, women can't vote. The other side is arguing that according to Islam, women should vote because equality of all believers and so on. I say Islam has nothing to do with it, right? And this is where he sets out, you know, uh, an idea that was not brand new in 1920, right? The idea that there was a limit to the jurisdiction of religious law and that beyond that boundary lies the area of the public interest of the day. And he emphatically argued that the Congress has to be free to adopt laws that suit the conditions of the day. They can't explicitly uh, violate basic principles, but in no way, shape or form should their laws be based on Islamic law. This is a break with say what went on in, um, uh, in Iran uh, only a few years earlier, right? Um, but the, the, he went on to say, okay, what is our public interest today? We have, we have the French army lined up across the border, uh, you know, not even a border that the Syrians accepted, right? But on the Lebanese coast, um, we, can't, we can't be divided over this. We must reunite this Congress. He brought those guys in the turbans back into the room by saying our interest today is not to divide over this question. We're gonna set it aside, you know, women, we'll talk about women's suffrage later, um, but uh, we will unite now, you know. He Absolutely then did not. say, what? No, 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 we're not, gonna, we're not gonna put this discussion off. You're anticipating one of my other questions, which is, oh, good. I think Abid does raise the issue of women's suffrage. And right. you, in your colonial citizens, you gendered the discussion of the mandate era in a way which really was pioneering. Yeah. And I'm glad to see that you brought the you know, question of suffrage into the analysis in your book as well. Talk yeah. through those debates because, I mean, unlike the Egypt that Rida was engaged in at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, where the debate about women's rights was being framed essentially by men arguing mm -hmm. in and out of an Islamic discourse, people like Qasim Amin. Here we have a Syrian woman putting the challenge to a Syrian Congress constituent assembly to give educated women the right to vote. And it sets off a tremendous debate. So could you talk a little bit about that? Because it's a really exciting part of the book. Oh, yeah, well, I'm glad. Yeah, no, and uh, in, in some ways, if you read, you compare the two books, you'll see that uh, I shifted my view a little bit, uh, the, you know, with a closer reading and so on. Um, it wasn't just Syrian women from Damascus. Women came from Beirut as well, right? Um, and uh, were um, embraced by many of the men in, that, in those chambers. In fact, the secretary of the Congress was Isla Tarweze, mm -hmm. um, who came from Nablus, right? And uh, he claimed in his memoir that in fact, the majority of the people in that room mm -hmm. favored women's suffrage. Yeah. And, uh, you know, had they, um, circumstances been different, uh, perhaps Syrian women would have gotten suffrage at that moment. Had the American, you know, and you have to think of all the contingencies of that moment, had the Americans still been in the game, right? Had the, uh, you know, the, the original vision of mandates, one of a very light touch, uh, you know, uh, simple sort of technical advisors and so on, um, been uh, the prospect, not the military occupation by the French army, right? 
um, it may well have stood, um, but uh, and and the, the you know the storming out of a half dozen deputies would have been of lesser consequence. As it was, those deputies who stormed out of the room in late April um, during the um, debate on women's suffrage would a month later or so, and by June, it's 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 kind of clear from multiple sources that uh, they're being wooed heavily by the French, right? The French are bent on splitting that coalition, sure. right? And among them happen to be very, you know, people linked to very wealthy landowners and so on, local notables, mm -hmm. which have been written about before by Philip Khoury and others, you know, um, who, who looked on Azat Darwaze and, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, you know, Riyadh Sol from uh, Lebanon as interlopers, you know, for them, politics was quite local. And so the French were, e you know, easily able to persuade uh, wealthy people of Damascus, as well as local leaders up in the Northwest, in the Alawi country, and down in the you know, Druze regions and so on, to opt out. Okay, it wasn't hard to do. Um, but by no means um, should we as historians today take at face value their claim that there was never a popular base for uh, support for that Congress and what it represented. That, that, that is an untruth. Um, that really that, comes uh, through. Yeah, colonial powers. Now I get about another four minutes to question you and oh, okay. to be sharing this platform <laughs> with our okay. audience. Sorry to ramble I, on. I, no, no, no. I mean, my temptation to ramble on is the strength. I, I got one question already from Andrew Patrick. Andrew, great to have you with us. And I'll get to that in a second. But I just wanted to remind our viewers that if you do have a question you'd like to put to Professor Thompson, please do take advantage of the question and answer bar on the bottom of your screen if you are with us on Zoom. And those of you who are following this stream via Facebook, you can put questions and those will be um, tallied and uh, I believe that Carol Palmer will be bringing those back to the discussion later on. But do please weigh in. The, the nice thing about this format of webinars is that we really can involve the audience in a much more immediate and direct way. So take advantage. Chris Wilson, I see you just pinged in. Keep them coming, guys. I, I will get one, maybe uh, one and a half brief questions back to Libby, and then I'll start pulling on, on your questions. Okay, one of the things that's really striking, Libby, is that we have in this constitution a clear division of powers that already they're grappling with the idea that you've got to limit the authority of the executive, that there's got to be an importance that goes to the elected representative, the people. They are, in a sense, the most legitimate because they've been chosen by the people to resent. Uh, and you describe this first crisis in the Congress when the Congress approves a near unanimous motion that the prime minister and the government be responsible to the Congress and not to the king. And even Faisal shows his authoritarian streak in summoning Rida oh, yeah. to, to this point. Talk us through that, because I think it really is one of those defining moments of the kind of liberal order that Rida really represented in this constitution. Oh, and that, you know, and the peculiar thing is that story is not unknown. That, you know, Rida reprinted it in his magazine and I've seen it referred to in other sources, but never did it become the cornerstone for a reimagining of what really happened, right? The historiography to date 
um, had uh, you know ignored the fact that that conversation was part of a larger democratic project, right? Mm -hmm. So Rida um, uh, talks to Faisal. Rida and Faisal actually hit it off, right? They'd only met two months earlier uh, in Beirut when Faisal was coming back after uh, another round of negotiations in Paris. And um, Faisal actually thought that Rida would be his ally because he's a man of religion, um, you know, and prestigious, right? So we invited him over to Damascus. Uh, Rida, you know, was sort of saying, well, you know, I'd be happy to be your minister of religious affairs or, you know, whatever post you're offering me if and when you have a stable state there, but you know, I have a family back in Cairo and you know, I'm not sure I want to take it, but Faisal insisted and Rida said, okay, I'm going to come. And then it turned out, of course, right? Rida knew all these guys gathering in, in Damascus. Yeah. And so when Faisal called them in to say, hey, yeah, hey, wait a second, you know, I should be able to dissolve this Congress. We've declared independence. I need a free hand to negotiate with France. Mm -hmm. Rida surprises him by okay. saying, no, we elected you. Yeah. You did not create our Congress. We elected you the king. And therefore, you know, our word holds. And we say the prime minister is responsible to us in part because they wanted to retain some oversight over those negotiations. Mm -hmm. They were quite afraid, just as Iranians were afraid that their Shah would barter away natural resources and monopolies sold to you know European powers. So the you know, the Syrians were afraid that that Faisal would be um, persuaded yeah. to barter away their own sovereignty. Right? Rida profoundly believed. It's it's so puzzling. He absolutely believed without question in popular sovereignty. And you know you'll you'll see texts written later by scholars who ignore the the nuance, the texture of this moment. Um, and we'll speak in the abstract about whether popular sovereignty is possible within Islam because, you know, it's a theocracy and, you know, and so on. They are speaking the colonialist language. Yeah. Um, and may, will you permit me to make one note about that article one? Uh, just a drop. Absolutely. That, uh, you know, they, they carefully and argued about it and wrote and defended, it came up multiple times for debate, that the religion um, of the king, not the state, should be Islam. So what do the French do? They capture the penultimate version of the constitution. They have agents inside the Congress, it's quite clear. Um, they did bring it back to Beirut, and in August, after they've occupied Damascus, um, a man named Louis Mercier translates it into French. And he hands it over to a young man in his office who goes off to get a degree at the Sorbonne by writing a hatchet job of a thesis about what a pathetic effort to establish a state that was, okay? But the crucial thing is Louis Mercier, born in Algiers, um, well known for being fluent in Arabic, changes the language to the religion of the state is Islam. Oh, right. Decades later, in the Middle East Journal, Majid Khadouri mm -hmm. writes an article about the latest Syrian constitution passed in 1950 when the Syrian Muslim brothers sneaked in language about Islam. Okay? And he writes, oh, yes. And as in 1920, so Islam is still a cornerstone of the government in, in Syria. 
wrong, right? right. So the colonial lie persisted. All right, they erased, you cannot, you know, anyway, I'll stop there, but. Uh, well, I'm gonna stop here because I have gone a couple of minutes beyond my allowed bit. And um, I haven't had a chance to review the questions. So if okay. anything that's an absolute zinger, I apologize in advance. I'll handle it, I suppose. Yeah, Andrew Patrick's put a question to you. Okay. Important book, currently reading it, everything he hoped it would be. So you've got another fan. Okay. Woodrow Wilson and his ideas haunt its pages. I've long been interested in the gulf between Wilson's beliefs about the future of the Ottoman lands and what the people of the region thought he believed. Wilson favored tutorial mandates for the region, not independence. Yet the people of the region often saw him as a champion for their independence. Did your research shed any further light on how this gap opened between how he was perceived and what he himself actually wanted for the region? Oh yeah, he's most infamous in Eris Manella's book, The Wilsonian Moment, for agreeing to a protect, extending the British protectorate over Egypt, right? Um, despite all. But if you read between the lines in that book, it's not clear how much Wilson knew about what the Egyptians wanted, right? Uh, he was not, uh, we know that our own um, envoy in Cairo was not passing along a lot of uh, uh, you know, uh, telegrams and petitions uh, to Wilson and so on. Um, but we also know from, from my reading carefully of what went on in December uh, of 1918 and January of 1919, it's at the end of the month of January, mm -hmm. that they adopt the language of mandates for the uh, League of Nations Covenant, okay? Mm -hmm. um, it's quite clear to me that Wilson, A, became aware only in January of the kind of opposition he was up against. Right? On the ship crossing the Atlantic, he mused about what to do with the uh, colonies and territories left behind by the defeated German and Ottoman empires and Austro-Hungarian. And when it came to thinking about mandates, he was very wary about giving them over to great powers in Europe because he, for, he foresaw that they would just turn them into colonies. And Article 5 of his, or Point 5 of his 14 points had set out, uh, you know, that we should readjust all colonial claims and that the people should be consulted, hence the King Crane Commission, right? But what I think happened when he realized that, uh, well, basically, the members, the leaders of the British Commonwealth, particularly from Australia and South Africa, ganged up on him and they had a huge fight. He had apologized for speaking rudely and so on. He realized, okay, I have to get the League of Nations covenant in place, right? I have to compromise, right? But I'm gonna make sure that the League is the place that the decisions about these mandates will ultimately be made. Right, so the language that, you know, required the ratification by the League. Of course, at that time, fully expected the United States would be a major player in the League of Nations, yeah. right? Um, and being a, uh, here you have to read some of the intellectual histories of Wilson, of which there are many, right? And he was a great admirer of Edmund Burke and gradual change, not sudden revolutionary change, right? Uh, but that, uh, you know, the League would become a forum in which 
the many other nations of the world could converse with these great powers and bring them along to the idea of self-determination, okay? So I don't read, I, I don't see a basis to read into Wilson's motives, you know, an intent to betray, okay? Um, there is, you know, and I don't, and most of the Arab viewers, you know, or, you know, most Arab leaders remained, um, you know, hopeful and, uh, and sort of uh, that the United States would be a counterweight to European colonial aims long after. You know, uh, you know America's reputation for being so, a good guy in the region mm, outlived mm, the reality. And eventually <laughs> we turned that round, didn't we? We did. Uh, Five we or did. six more questions for you. So I'm gonna sure. try and urge you to hit them fast. Like, okay, yeah. Yeah. quick answers, okay. quick answers to questions. I got one from got Chris it. Wilson. Okay. Really looking forward to reading Professor Thompson's new book. I urge you to, Chris. Uh, linking back to your first book and working off one of Professor Rogan's questions, I wondered not so much about female suffrage, but how far the crisis of paternity, which shapes mandate state and society, also feeds into, or even makes possible, this post-war moment of unexpected coming together of liberals and Islamists. Does the crisis of paternity feed into this story? And if so, what might that suggest about the conditions of possibility for democracy in the region today? Hmm. Well, let's see. I'll take it on two levels, both on the sort of uh, looking at a level um, in terms of the men sitting in that room. Uh, you know, women were not allowed to go into that room to advance their appeal for suffrage, right? Mm -hmm. They had to find mm -hmm. deputies to speak for them, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that, uh, you know, this was a forum that had rejected monarchy, had rejected the Ottoman Caliph, you know, had uh, insisted it ruled over Faisal. Um, I'm not sure, you know, in this sense, it was a crisis, but was also a, a transition from, you know, the old paternalism of Ottoman society. Ridda actually wrote in his magazine, you know, we achieved a lot. This is in like 1921-22. Uh, we cheated a lot in Damascus. You know, that became a place where, you know, they, they began to drop all their, you know, uh, honorifics and, uh, you know, the social etiquette of social hierarchy um, that was so annoying in the past, right? Um, and so they were embracing that, and that's why there was an opening. But in the eyes of the men who gathered at Paris, it was truly a crisis of colonial paternalism they saw quite clearly what the future might hold, right? And here I differ with other historians who think they were just old men who didn't know any better. They were quite aware. Um, if you read just the, the letters and correspondence of Lord Curzon, right? <laughs> um, you know, who, uh, you know, had uh, headed India in the past, right? Um, you know, they, they were fighting tooth and nail to retain the sort of um, culture of paternalism that allowed for Europeans to claim they were more civilized than other peoples, right? Um, and so uh, crisis was in the eye of the holder. Is there, was this a time of opportunity or a, a time of danger? Thank you. Now I've got one from Anne Irfan. Hi Anne, glad to have you with us. Many thanks for your talk. Could you speak a little about the political journeys of other deputies besides Ritter after 1920? And of course, there are a lot of famous names there for those of us who work on 
the history of Lebanon, Palestine, Jordan, Syria. So what happens to others? Oh, yeah, that's a... Uh... Pick a couple. Yeah, sure. I mean, th and thank you for asking that question. It's a great question because, um, you know, it was only by going through their memoirs and looking at their trajectories that I began to realize how widely the uh, events at Damascus resounded um, and how long afterward. So um, I mentioned, uh, you know, Ritter going back to Cairo. With him in Cairo was Abdurrahman Shah Bandar, who had been the foreign minister um, uh, uh, in the Syrian Arab Kingdom, but also been with Rida in the Syrian Union Party, um, which wrote the original draft of the Constitution back in December 1918. Okay, so they were allies, um, but Shah Bandar would become known as the leader of the Syrian revolt in a few years, and as a sort of his reputation was that of a secular liberal, which was a little extreme. He, he believed in the separation of religion and state, but if you look at his education and the language he used in his correspondence, he was not a man who was fundamentally anti-religion either. Right? Um, uh, so Shafander would spend much longer in exile and would return only to Syria in the late 1930s, at which time the national bloc found him to be a great problem and he was mysteriously killed in his doctor's office, right? Um, another um, uh, veteran of the Congress, I mentioned Rizat Darwaze, mm -hmm. who was the secretary of the Congress. He'd been, uh, mm -hmm. um, excuse me? Oh, you said Rizat Darwaze, it's Rizat Darwaze. Rizat uh, Darwaze, oh, sorry, Rizat Darwaze, um, who, you know, returned to Palestine to help organize resistance to the British mandate there and opened a national school in uh, Nablus that actually taught Gandhian style civil, civil disobedience, which I found fascinating and was, uh, you know, amongst those in the Slikwal party behind ultimately the, the revolt in Palestine. He ended up in exile as well. I had the pleasure of meeting his grandson, who is a professor in London. Um, and who sat at his knee every Friday, transcribing Azat Darwaze's memoirs as he was going blind as an older man. Um, so they, they too had come together, um, the, the many of the veterans of the Congress, at a, uh, a meeting of Arab nationalists in Jerusalem in 1931, alongside the famous Islamic Congress, right? And had maintained the vision of reuniting greater Syria, perhaps with Iraq as well, and had even invited Faisal to host a subsequent meeting in Baghdad, which the British quickly um, intervened to prevent, right? So they all became much more um, hostile right. toward Europe, just as Rita had become. But they maintained, that generation maintained a vision of what might have been and did exert efforts to restore the unity that they had briefly achieved at Damascus. One last person would be uh, Riyad Solh, yeah. whom I mentioned, uh, came from the Lebanese coast um, and of course would become the prime minister of Lebanon, but reluctantly. He spent uh, the 1920s with Shakib Arslan in Geneva appealing to the League of Nations, all right? So the, 
the, it, it really took several years in the 1920s for people to, for the, the leaders of the Congress to finally turn against the League, the League and the idea that there could be um, a, a truly equitable world system based on international law that would respect the rights of peoples in the Middle East. I haven't touched on, I have a chapter in the book and that I'm going to use as the basis of a future book on their perceptions of race and the racial hierarchy in international law. I think that's very important that Arabs had begun by believing that they could pass as white. Right. And it took you know, several years into the 1920s to recognize how deep uh, white racism was and how, how, how it had been built into, if you will, the DNA of international law and the international organizations like the League of Nations. And as we're all only too aware, remains in the DNA of society to be addressed. So Absolutely. as now. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that it, it's so striking reading through the book, just how influential the individuals who took part in the Congress were. You know, in the American example, one compares to a Continental Congress or, you know, the Constitutional Assemblies, you know, great assembly of influential individuals from across a broad terrain. You really had that in this Damascus Congress. And these were the political leaders that would go to shape the interwar years in all the countries of greater Syria. Yeah. I have a couple more questions coming your way from uh, Yazid Zahda. Where did Rida find the inspiration for the separation between state and religion? How come his protege, Hassan al-Banna, later took the opposite stance towards state and religion? Ah, um, your question really deserves to be answered by someone who is more, uh, you know, the uh, religious studies and intellectual scholar than I am. I, uh, I confess I haven't gone through all of Rida's writings in the years uh, preceding 1920 to know uh, whence derived the idea. As I say, I don't think, uh, it, it certainly is clear from what I've read of his in Amanar mm -hmm. and what I saw him do in Damascus, uh, that he, he did believe as a modernist that Islamic law per se had a defined sphere of jurisdiction, and that there really was this sphere of public interest, a maslaha al amma, that belonged to the politics of the day. Okay, and so that enabled the idea that there should be a separation. That you know, when push came to shove in 1920, he was willing to concede that point. Right, uh, as I mentioned, he might have entertained some level of official recognition of Islam in the state otherwise, but he backed down. He was a man that people make, uh, other scholars, not just myself, have, have observed that he, he grew up and was raised on the Lebanese coast, um, which was a pluralistic society and was raised with a respect uh, for other beliefs. And at his memorial service, uh, after he died in 1935 in Cairo, a Lebanese journalist, a Christian, stood up and sort of scolded the uh, Azhar sheikhs who had 
given eulogies of Rida as a great Muslim and Islamic scholar to say, he was my best friend. And, you know, I remind you, you know, that he was Lebanese and he was, he was not a man solely within this world of Islam. You know, Banna, on the other hand, I'll give them one anecdote there. Banna lived in a very, you know, grew, came from a very different place. He was not much of an intellectual and was not going to be intellectually consistent. And I became persuaded of this by his own brother. 14 years younger, Gamal Banna, I had the privilege before he died of interviewing him in Cairo. And he told me a story. And one day his brother sent him a note. They clearly weren't that close. It was in like 1946, and he says, why don't you come over to us, the Muslim brothers? They were both very religious guys, right? And he wrote back and said, you Muslim brothers, you become as doctrinaire as the communists. You know, I'm an intellectual. I cannot live within that straightened thing. But then he looked to me, Gamalabana, and he said, you know, my brother had a genius for organization, the amazing organization that he built of the Muslim Brotherhood, right? He was nothing when it came to philosophy. <laughs> he was inconsistent, right? And so for Banna, he grew up amongst the, you know, in a society that privileged Islamic law. He found that common people rallied to the idea of Islamic law. He didn't pay, I, I feel he didn't, he didn't even pay attention to the inconsistency of what he was arguing when he um, extended, you know, in meetings and uh, speeches in the late 1930s, this idea that the Egyptian constitution must be reconciled to Islamic law, right? So um, not, you know, uh, uh, Ridda was not his only teacher and Banna was not uh, uh, Ridda's star student. And as other scholars have pointed out, Banna adopted Ridda's magazine, a Manar, not clearly with any mandate from Ridda at all, but that he wanted to claim that mantle later on, ex post facto, right? And it didn't survive because he was not the great scholar that Rinda was. Libby, thank you for that. I mean, we're now 11 minutes uh, past five. I know the plan is for us to bring our session to a close at about quarter past. I'm going to just quickly note two remaining questions that you probably won't get time to answer, but okay. you might, after we're done, be able to follow up. And I know that Carol Palmer is at the wings waiting to make the final uh, words for this session. But Lauren Banku really enjoyed Justice Interrupted and wanted to press you methodologically a bit to, she hasn't read the new book, but she wondered how the premise and argument of both books are different and to what extent they're methodologically related or should be read together. So Lauren Banco, you know, it'd be great if you could follow up with her on that. And we have an anonymous question, um, just asking a little bit more about the place of religious minorities, especially Christians and Jews, mm. in Faisal's policies and the deliberations of the Congress. You won't have time to get to that, but I wanted to share it with you because they're great questions. Yeah, they are. I'm Thanks. sorry. I wanna... I'm going to hand over to Carol and um, give the last word to you. Um, I, I just wanted to mention that we did have one question also from, uh, from Facebook, from uh, Mansour Nasasra. Um, who is interested in the, uh, the character of uh, Ezat Darwaze too, as well. And he sends his greetings and, and thanks as well. Oh, wonderful, thank you. <laughs> and um, 
So uh, really, um, it just remains for me to thank you, um, Elizabeth, very much for presenting your book and for the in-depth analysis that also uh, Eugene Professor Rogan has done today. Um, we've been discussing um, your book, How the West Stole Democracy from the Arabs, which has just been published, hot off the press, um, and available in all good bookstores and on Amazon, I'm sure, as well. It just remains for you to say, I hope you've enjoyed being with us today, and please do sign up to CBRL's mailing list if you want to find out more to get emails into your inbox directly and our monthly newsletter. And if you'd like to uh, also support CBRL by becoming a member, we, we would very much welcome that as well too. So thank you once again to um, both our speakers today. And it's been a pleasure to have everybody with us. So many thank familiar you. names and thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carol and Eugene. My pleasure. <laughs> thank you.